David Suisa, Editor-in-Chief of the Jewish Journal. Please visit us at jewishjournal.com. And welcome to my podcast. Our sponsor this week is Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. And you can learn more about their Master of Social Work program at wurz.yu.ed. And our guest today is my friend David Brogue. Before we get started, I would like to again welcome our sponsor this week, Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work now offers an online Master of Social Work program. Obtain your MSW while serving the community where you live. There is a 10% degree completion scholarship available for all online students. The most exciting aspect of this program is called The Heights, a virtual environment accessible through their online classroom which allows students to explore simulated social work scenarios by visiting points of interest on a digital map so they can build experience with client consultations, home visits, and other aspects of social work safely from anywhere in the world. Makes me feel like going back to college. Today, I'm delighted to have David Brogue, straight from Las Vegas. Welcome, David. Great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. When I first met you, it was in Caesarea in Israel, you were executive director of Christians United for Israel. You have a really interesting background. You worked in the Senate for all inspector, graduated from Harvard Law School. You've been a lawyer. You worked in politics. And now you're running this incredible organization called the Maccabee Task Force. So tell us uh, for a minute or two on your journey and how you ended up in this spot. So... I, you know, I, uh, after law school, I, I made the mistake of practicing law for four years, uh, two years in Philadelphia, did not like it. So I figured, you know what would be more exciting and more interesting? I moved to Israel and practiced law in Tel Aviv for two years. And at the time, this was the early 90s, I was doing, I was representing this new phenomenon, something people were just starting to talk about. There were young kids getting out of the army, some of the more technological units, and developing startups in high tech and in software. The first of these Israeli startups, my firm represented them, and uh, we actually saw some of them blossom. Which and, year was that? This would have been 1993, 1994, early 1995. Oh, this is the real beginning of Startup the Nation. real beginning. So, you know, they used to say back in the old days, how do you make a small fortune in Israel? You move there with a large fortune. <laughs> right. It's changed so much, but I think had I stayed in Israel, um, I had a, a lot of my clients ended up doing very, very well. You would have made a but, large fortune. But I came back to the United States to work on a losing presidential campaign, the campaign of Arlen Specter in 1996. Uh, he lost the race for the Republican nomination, uh, but he hired me to work for his Senate staff. Uh, I worked for him for uh, seven years, became his chief of staff. But in the process, I noticed something that fascinated me. Um, Central Pennsylvania is a very conservative Christian belt in the Northeast. And I met a lot of evangelicals while working for Arlen Specter. And they all told me how much they loved Israel. Uh, and they all told me how much they loved me as a Jewish person. And I think back in those days, again, this is the mid-late 90s, I had a typical Jewish response, which was... Don't convert me. Bull. Yeah. It was, don't convert me, and, and I don't buy it. Because for 2,000 years, you people have tried to kill us and convert us, and now you're telling me you love us? Uh, I don't believe it. You know what I tell them, David? Mm. I tell them, look, uh, thanks to you, 
you kept our book relevant right. throughout the world. The Old Testament, you didn't throw it away. So you kept our book relevant throughout most of the planet, and in return, we gave you Jesus. I think that's a fair deal. That's how I, that's how I, uh, I deal it's with it. It's a very them. fair deal, and today they're giving us enormous support. And so you it, saw that as yeah. early as the late 90s. Well, I got curious about it, but everyone told me uh, Christians supported Israel for negative reasons, nefarious reasons. They want to convert us. They want to speed the, the second apocalypse, coming. right. But that didn't square with the wonderful people I was meeting and getting to know and getting to love. And so I embarked out of pure geeky curiosity um, on three years of research into why do Christians support Israel. Uh, it ended up being my first book called Standing with Israel, mm -hmm. in which I conclude and, and I argue and I believe and my opinion hasn't changed in, in the years since. Christians support Israel not for the ugly reasons that some who don't know them would suggest. Christians support Israel for really beautiful reasons, altruistic reasons, and biblical reasons. Mm -hmm. not, not, to, not, not, not to speed the apocalypse, but to, to fulfill the promises in, in the Hebrew Testaments, the, the promises in the Hebrew Bibles. And out of a belief that, that God loves and cherishes the Jewish people, it's God's will that we return to our homeland, if this is God's will, then, then they want to be on God's side. So it's a beautiful thing when you know it well. And so through that book, I ended up becoming higher number one uh, with a, a group called Christians United for Israel. Which became huge. Became very huge. You were the first hire at CU. Uh, Pastor Hagee and I met after the book came out. Um, he saw my experience on Capitol Hill. He knew I knew the Jewish community well and Israel well. And he said to me, I have a crazy idea. Uh, I'd like, uh, for lack of a better term, to build a Christian APAC. Do you think he can help us do it? Um, to me, that was a very exciting opportunity. You know, there are not a lot of us Which in this Which year country. was this, David? This was 2006. Very there, beginning. Oh, yeah. But I saw the opportunity both to work with people I had grown to love and appreciate, but also the political opportunity here because the Jewish population in America is small and geographically challenged. You know, we're, we're, we're very much on the coasts in a couple of cities. We're not well represented in between. If we want to ensure political support for Israel going forward, it was important that we grow the ranks of this pro-Israel base and that we bring to this pro-Israel base the kind of geographical contiguity that only the Christian community can bring us. So it was an exciting challenge and I think an important challenge to do what we ultimately did through Christians United for Israel, which was to really grow in a deep, meaningful way the pro-Israel base in America beyond the Jewish community to include the evangelical community. How today, big are everyone's they? aware of it. How big is Five million like? today. Literally five million members. And they are everywhere. They're right here in L.A. They're, they're in New York, but they're in every congressional district in between. Mm -hmm. And that's why all you know. We, for a long time, we, we were trying to pass sanctions legislation on Iran, for example, and lots of members of Congress from uh, rural districts, a flyover country, wouldn't sign up. It wasn't because they had any great affinity for Iran. It's just they didn't have a reason to care enough about the issue to get on board. Mm -hmm. Our members gave them a reason to care about the issue, and they got on board. Are you disappointed sometimes when you see that so many liberal Jews in America have a problem with evangelical support for Israel. I they don't am. seem to appreciate it enough. How do you deal with that? I, I am because ultimately, close. Yeah. ultimately, um, A, it just makes perfect political sense. We need the friends, we need the support, and we need the support in the places where the Jewish community is not. And so this makes a great logical sense, but it's deeper than that. Morally, 
I fear our community sometimes does to Christians the very thing we complained about for centuries when Christians did it to us. For centuries, Christians presumed to know us. They presumed to to know our faith. And they presumed to condemn us on the basis of these myths and stereotypes about Jews and the Talmud. And, and persecuted us. And all we ever asked, all we ever wanted is that they would get to know us, get to know the truth about us, and appreciate us for what we are. And it's, uh, and they're not doing that here in America. So many liberal Jews are judging you and stereotyping they're, you. They're presuming to judge Christians and condemn Christians on the basis of myths and stereotypes. These are people who don't know anything about Christianity, and they don't know many Christians. So before they judge and condemn, we have an, a moral obligation to know what we're talking about. And we have mm-hmm. a moral obligation under Judaism called hakarata tov, Mm-hmm. to recognize when people do something good for us. And when it comes to that moral obligation, our community has failed. We're doing better now. Do you think it's because also, David, uh, they put other things ahead of Israel or ahead of, you know, for example, you know, so many liberal Jews in America are pro-choice and in the evangelical world and so much of the Christian world, it's pro-life. And do you think those things get in the way? I think it, I think it does. I, I think there's, because of differences of opinion that, that have been energized, uh, the fact that someone holds a pro-life view um, is used as a sign, uh, again, and it, I think a lot of the way Jews view American politics is based on our history. And we have a history of being persecuted by a Christian minority, mm-hmm and a history of Christianity being imposed upon us. So we, we become hypersensitive to anything we see as an effort by Christians to impose their faith or their values on us. Or their policies. And so it becomes right. hyper-emotionally charged um, when a Christian will support the issue of life. Uh, I think we should take the emotion out of it and realize at a minimum, reasonable people, decent people can disagree on the issue of life. And more than that, if you study the Torah and the Talmud, the pro-life position uh, aligns with a lot of the Jewish writing and a Jew- the Jewish response on the issue. You know, what's interesting is there's so much hyper-emotionalism in the good direction in terms of the unconditional love for Israel, which gives a <laughs> yes. lot of Jews here the goosebumps because we're desperately always looking for friends and supporters. Oh, we are. And I find that the unconditional love that the Christian movement brings to Israel is really something to behold. It's, it's, something, it's something beautiful, something we've been praying for for the centuries of exile. And now that we have it, uh, we should recognize it for what it is, understand it. And I'm convinced when you understand the true motives behind it, you will and should appreciate it. Well, you know, uh, we don't like unconditional love in the Jewish world. Uh, we're, we're, we're somewhat threatened by it. We prefer tough love. We prefer criticism and stuff and god knows we do plenty of it uh the what but the christian community that's not what they're into and sometimes we just have to let them be who they are and what they are that's what they do they do unconditional love we'll take care of the criticism yeah we have a bit of the groucho marx mentality right <laughs> we don't want to be a member of any club uh, that would have us now uh, i remember when i was a uh, keynote speaker for camera about the Christian love for Israel, but with the new generation, and I needed, I was doing research, and I came across this amazing essay from a gentleman called David Brogue, which was you, and you 
um, wrote about how the new generation of, of Christians, it's not exactly the same kind of deep emotional connection to Israel, that they're being influenced by some of the that's new right. liberal. Do you want to talk about that? Well, that's right. And this is ultimately some of the phenomenon that, that brought me to the Maccabee Project. But um, look, ultimately, at the end of the day, those Christians who support Israel, as you say, unconditionally, it, it comes from a Bible mandate. Uh, um, they, um, and this goes deep into Christian theology, I won't get too far into it, but basically when it comes to the word Israel in the Bible, Christians who support Israel tend to interpret that word Israel to mean the Jewish people, the Jews. For centuries, most Christians interpreted that word a different way. They interpreted Israel to mean themselves, the church. Mm. So, you know, if you take the Bible literally, and if Israel means the church, then there's nothing in your Bible, in your faith, that's going to drive you to want to bless the Jewish people or to support the modern state of Israel. But if you're a biblical literalist and you believe the word Israel means the Jewish people, mm. it means a physical flesh and blood people, well, then your Bible is going to, going to have the same effect upon you that the Bible has upon an Orthodox Jew. You're going to see the Jewish people as central to God's plan. Mm. The Jewish people as connected to a certain land. God's promise to bring them back to that piece of land. You're going to see Zionism as not only historic justice, but also the, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The older generation of Christians in America are more biblically literalist. So, so they see this deep in the Bible, and they have this strong predisposition to support Israel. By the way, I don't think it's unconditional. I think if Israel engaged in certain ugly behaviors, mm -hmm. some of the behaviors others might accuse them of, mm -hmm. they would lose the support of these Christians. Mm -hmm. Morality would conflict with, with the biblical mandate, and morality would win at the end of the day. But because Israel is, as you and I know, a, a moral country, not a perfect country, but a moral country, the Bible mandate stands, they take it literally, they support Israel. Their children, like our children in the Jewish community, tend to be less, less biblically literalist. They tend to be more informed by general ideas of morality. In their, you know, in our case, in the case of our children, it might be the concept of tikkun olam. In their case, their version of tikkun olam is sort of what would Jesus do? Jesus was this figure of compassion, this figure who stood with the oppressed and the downtrodden. If I want to model Jesus in my life, I too should stand with the oppressed and the downtrodden. It's removed mm -hmm. from the literalism. Mm -hmm. But if your goal is to stand with the oppressed and the downtrodden in a general sense, that means these Christians are in play. Because mm -hmm. that means if someone can get to them and tell them the oppressed in the Middle East are not the Israelis, but the Palestinians, and the oppressor is the Israelis, Mm -hmm. then they can be turned into enemies of Israel instead of friends of Israel. And we were seeing that happening on a very large scale. You know, I think I've just discovered the key difference between the Jewish love for Israel and the Christian love for Israel. And I don't think I've had this thought before, but in the Jewish way, we've built Israel. It's done. Now we can fight. Now we can criticize. Now we can argue. And God knows we do. We're done. We built it. I think in the biblical Christian way, it's not done yet. You know, there's still this sort of messianic idea behind the whole notion of Israel and this idea that it's still in formation, in, in a biblical formation, which is not the right time to sort of be too critical, if you will. Am I, do I have anything here? I, I think you're on to the fact that there is a sense. And again, when I talk about Christian Zionists, 
they're very similar to modern Orthodox Zionists. Mm -hmm. There's an element of Bible and God that a secular Zionist wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. So for them, this is, this is the fulfillment of the biblical prophecy. In formation. It's in formation, but God's hand is on it. I see. So their job is to support it, not to intervene too strongly. I would add, by the way, and this is something important, there's also a moral component to the non-interventionism. You know, when Christian um, uh, Kufi, Christians United for Israel, was created, a lot of people hoped that it would try to dictate policy to Israel, and, or a lot of people were afraid it would mm. try to intervene in internal Israeli politics. And our board took a very strong position that living in the safety and comfort of America, where, where they and their children do not serve in the army and they and their families are not under threat from Hamas or Hezbollah missiles, they have the right to support Israel and what the Israeli people decide. They don't have the right to dictate to Israel or to impose their will upon Israel. And there's something deeply moral about that as Christians mm -hmm. living in America, that they recognize the moral limits of their intervention. Mm, especially on security issues. Let me tell you, I have a son in the army, in the Israeli army, and I feel now a little more empathy for uh, the Israeli father or mother who has a son in the army. And I can criticize a lot of things, but for me to tell you what you need to do based on security issue is a little bit too much chutzpah for me. Well, and it's funny you say that, David, because I remember when asked about this, Pastor Hagee, our founder, his response was, my son doesn't serve in the Israeli army. He mm -hmm. lives with me in San Antonio, thousands of miles away. I don't have the right to dictate to those Israelis on the front lines what they should do to defend themselves, their homeland, and their families. Yeah, on security. So just before we move on to Maccabee, because I can't wait to get there, I can't resist asking you, what, what is it like for a Jew to be surrounded by 5 million Christians <laughs> for how long? For 10 years? 10 years. Oh. You, you, 10 years, you lived in the Christian world, CUFI. I, I literally did. I moved from Washington, D.C., not to San Antonio, Texas, but to, <laughs> to the Texas Hill Country outside of San Antonio. What is it like? You, it, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, again, um, we're used, you know, I was raised in an environment where uh, I, I was told to be fearful um, that Christians would find out I'm Jewish and, and judge me poorly you know, persecute me. But to be in an environment where we are appreciated, our contributions to civilization and to Christianity are appreciated, and, and, and where people want to stand with you in the battle for survival facing the Jewish people today, I never got tired of it. I Did never you go to church? You, uh, uh, you probably had uh, to be in church all the time to make speeches, oh, right? I've, I've spoken in hundreds of churches. <laughs> yeah. I, there was a period when my, my folks were getting worried about me. I was spending an awful I was a I'm single worried about guy. you now. Ten was, years going to churches. A Jew, you know, you should write a you book on that. Let me tell you something. A Jew who spends ten years going to churches. That, I, that's a book. A lot of people assumed that if I'm a Jewish person running Christians United for Israel, I must be a Messianic Jew, a Jewish believer that Jesus is the Messiah. I think it's important not to misrepresent who I am. And and when I heard that that rumor was out there, I decided that's not right. I don't want to benefit. I didn't even know about it. I don't want to benefit yeah. from it. Eh, okay. Jewish guy, evangelical yeah. organization. So I started beginning every speech I made in a church with, with the following line. I was saying I'm a Jew who works for a Christian organization. 
Um, but I don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe the Messiah has yet come to earth. I'm, I'm a Jewish believer in a faith called Judaism. And uh, I'm, uh, Did the crowd deflate? <laughs> this is what I want to That became, to my great surprise and pleasure, an applause line. Oh, man. Instead, I said to people, I, I want you to know I'm not a Jew for Jesus. I, I'm a Jew for Judaism who loves our Christian friends and supporters. More often than not, that, that was an applause line. And that told me and constantly reminded me that the stereotype with which I and so many Jews were raised about intolerant Christians is not true, especially when it comes to these Christians who do believe that the word Israel in the Bible means the Jewish people, who mm-hmm. do believe that God is still in covenant with the Jewish people, who do support this Jewish project of survival in Israel. If only these Christians were all Christians, we'd be in much better shape. Well, but unfortunately, they're a minority of Christians. You must have had at least one Christian in 10 years give you a leaflet and tell you how you could be saved. I got to be honest to. with you. It happened twice. In each case, it was a Jew for Jesus who did it. Uh-huh. Well, we, they tended to be more aggressive in sharing, uh, in sharing their faith with a Jewish person. Um, I, never, I, I never would have resented it. I understand that that's their exactly. worldview. It just didn't happen. Exactly. Um, so then uh, three years ago, yeah. this opportunity came up, uh, the Maccabee Task Force. What was the genesis of that idea? So um, yeah, 2015... Um, Sheldon Adelson, uh, Miriam Adelson, Chaim Saban got together and, and, and decided they wanted to do something uh, about what was clearly a, a threat that we as a community had not done enough to respond to, the threat of BDS on campus. But understanding from the start that BDS, the Boycott Divestment Movement, is really a buzzword. It's a, it's a catch-all for the larger movement to delegitimize Israel on campus. And they felt the time had come to devote significant resources to a more strategic approach. We had done a lot of one-offs and ad hoc responses. It was time for a more thorough, uh, better-funded, strategic response to this ongoing threat. On campuses. The, the, the original focus has been on campus. Right. And, and then you've done a lot. So how do we... How do we unpack this? Because you've done so much, and I'd like our listeners to get a sense of your strategy that you've done. Because one of the things I've been very intrigued by your organization is you haven't been pushing your brand. Unlike so many other organizations that send us press releases all the time, and here's what we've done on this campus, here's what we've done on that campus, you've just been sort of quiet in terms of your own brand, but the activities themselves have sort of spoken for you. Is that by design? It is. Um, I was given the luxury uh, by the Adelsons who fund us. Not, you know, normally you've, you've got to run around fundraising and you've got to puff up what you do in order to convince people to give you money. Everything you do has to be world-changing and, 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 and mm-hmm. a complete victory. Uh, and you go around talking about it and people give you money. They freed me from that by providing the resources to this effort. Mm-hmm. And they gave me a mandate to go out and figure out how their resources could be best applied to the problem of delegitimization. And I, I decided, after I, spent, I, I had spent many years, Kufi had a campus program. Um, I had spent many years on the campuses with Kufi. 
Um, and then when I got this job with the Maccabee Task Force, I, I called everyone in the field and I asked for their advice and I spent a lot of time talking to people. And I decided that we as a community had made a few mistakes that we in the Maccabee Task Force should try to rectify. Mistake number one is this always having to put your logo on things, always having to claim credit for things, um, and not letting the students who are really living there and doing most of the work take the credit for what they do. And so number one, we were determined to reverse that and let the students take the credit. Number two, we also decided to listen to the students. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been on any campus, and I've never been on their campuses. Mm. So. I think we in our community sometimes make the mistake of going to campus from outside the campus and dictating to them, mm -hmm. here's what you should do, here's the speaker you should bring. Did you go yourself? Yes, yes. How um, many campuses did was, you visit? Uh, when we, we started this as an experiment on mm -hmm. six campuses facing bad BDS. Which ones? Um, we started this, and I think, I told you earlier, we made a pledge to our partners that we won't talk about the partnership and, uh, unless they're comfortable with it. So I know UCLA is one of them. Mm -hmm. We've been able to discuss that partnership quite openly. Um, UCSD is another. We've discussed that quite openly. Trying to think if the others are ones that are comfortable oh, okay. talking about but, it. But you, you focused on six in the beginning. We focused on six. I went to all six, and we did something that um, I think was new to them, which is we showed up and we said, if resources were no object to you, what would you want to do this semester to fight the delegitimization of Israel on campus or to proactively promote Israel on campus? And obviously, sometimes the best way to fight delegitimization is not to respond, but to proactively promote something beautiful and good about Israel. And so we asked them for their ideas, and we just listened, mm. and we wrote them down. And we said, okay, if that's what you want to do, we'll fund it. But something became clear to me immediately, which I thought was very exciting, which was we got some excellent ideas at Campus A. We went down the road to Campus B, and we heard some excellent ideas that were completely different from the ideas we heard at the first campus, and so on. So eventually, we could circle back with our partners and say, okay, you wanted to do those four things. We're gonna do those four things. Would you be interested in these additional 15 ideas nice. that were given to us by the other campuses? And so in each case, we were able to cobble together a comprehensive action plan that could really reach beyond the pro-Israel community into the campus as a whole and actually change the conversation about Israel. And we gave each campus the best ideas of the other campuses. We became a clearinghouse for the best ideas. And each campus remained a laboratory because each campus had its own unique ideas that we were testing and trying. And as we grew the next year to 20 or the next year to 40 campuses, we kept on doing the same thing, bringing the best ideas we saw national, but making sure that 15, 20% of each action plan remained local and new so we could test new ideas, and then when we identified new strategies that worked, take them national as well. You know, what I've noticed is we're we so often feel like under siege uh, because the, the BDS campaign is so discriminatory and it's so obviously biased against one country, and they have now intersectionality, so if you're a liberal Zionist, they don't let you, you know, be part of this LBGTQ cause or this African-American or this minority issue just because you're pro-Israel. So there's a real sense of being under siege. And I've noticed that uh, we're uh, flailing away sometimes at looking at what hat should we wear. So some group will say we've got to be warriors. 
Other group will say, we got to be debaters. And other groups will say, no, we got to be lovers. So we show our love for, for Israel. And then, and then you, I've noticed there are all these different hats that you can wear. Have you tried, have you identified some hats that you think work better than others? I'd say ultimately we benefit from a comprehensive strategy. Um, and that means we so need there are certain times when we must wear the warrior hat, for example. I think I think it sometimes it helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sometimes um, so, you know, we need bad cops and we need good cops. Most of the students on campus don't want to be in the business of uh, shouting or, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or fighting. They prefer to be in the good cop business. Uh, I see. And they prefer to talk about the positive attributes of Israel. And more than that, they will tell me, and this is, this is worth listening to, that the, when the other side uh, is excessive and, and disrupts an event or shouts or screams or says ugly things, they actually do themselves a disservice. Because like happened at UCLA. Well, that's, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. They say millennials are now Generation Z don't like anger, don't mm. like extremism. So our, our, our opponents don't do themselves any favor when they cross a line into hate and anger and extremism. We ought not follow them into that counterproductive behavior. And, and I, I appreciate that and think that that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Give me At an the example. same time. Yeah, give me an example of ideas that, that have worked out of the many, if you so, had to pick one or two or three. By the way, I'm very, I'm very proud of this, David. We now, when we go to a campus, this year we're on 80 campuses, we still listen, we still support the local ideas, and then we offer uh, between 20 and 25 of our best ideas and strategies from across the country. We offer brilliant, comprehensive, transformative ideas. Can you share and those I'm very ideas proud with of the, the journal? Fact, yeah. Okay. And I'm very proud of the fact, though, that not one of those good ideas was our idea. Mm. None. These are all ideas that came to us from our partners on the ground who are trying to figure out how to promote Israel in a very difficult circumstance. And when they found something that worked, they shared it with us. Can you share one or two? The centerpiece of what we do, without a doubt. And again, a a third mistake. So I spoke about, you know, uh, our community's mistakes. One was trying to take credit for everything, put, put a logo on everything, number one. Number two was a lack of humility. We would dictate to students instead of listen. The third mistake I think we have made as a community is we let ourselves believe the illusion that a one-off event here or there changes something. And I learned firsthand when I worked for Christians United for Israel how, how, how far from reality that is. We organized this impressive tour of pro-Israel Arab speakers. And I brought them to some tough California Mm. campuses to see that even these Arab citizens of Israel appreciate the Jewish state. And they were powerful and they were compelling Mm. and no one showed up. And I think very often we delude ourselves into thinking that a speaker, even if some people do show up, or a movie or a Shabbat dinner can change things. And I'm afraid more often than not, it doesn't really have an impact beyond the small pro-Israel community on campus. And so what we tried to do is come up with a way where the pro-Israel community could reach the larger campus and transform the larger campus. The centerpiece of that strategy is an idea that came to us from UCLA, which was to do a trip to Israel. Nothing works like a trip to Israel. Mm. Do a trip to Israel not for Jewish students, but for those students who are most powerful and influential in the political debate on campus. And this has worked so well, we offer it to every campus we go to, and it's not cheap, and the Adelsons enable this kind of generosity. Mm -hmm. 
But we say to the pro-Israel students we work with, map your campus. Figure out who controls the political debate on your campus and then invite them on this fact-finding mission to Israel and the Palestinian territories mm -hmm. so they can see the facts for themselves. Mm -hmm. As you know, the truth about Israel and the Palestinian territories is so compelling that even a bad trip to Israel accomplishes our goal. And, and really, How in a sense- How many trips have you guys done so far? So we've done over 50. Yeah. Last year, we were on 40 campuses, and most of them did a trip. This year, we're on 80 campuses, and I believe this year we'll end up doing close to 75 trips. How many people on one trip? We are one average? of the largest tour providers to Israel you've never heard of. And Amazing. And it has nothing to do with birthright. No. And how many people on average? On, a on average, I'd say 20, 22 on average. We, we, we'll fund up to 25. Ideally, we'd like three to five pro-Israel students to accompany 15 to 20 of these campus leaders and influencers. But this is where, by the way, I think our, our, our opponents do us a favor. They, they don't rely on the truth about this conflict, and they don't rely on subtle massaging of the truth. They lie about this conflict. They say things about Israel that are clearly false. So like? That, oh, like Israel is an apartheid country. Mm -hmm. or, or like Israel is, is, is occupying the West Bank for, for no reason. Mm -hmm. Um, completely skipping over the fact that, that there's a Jewish connection to this land, mm -hmm. and more importantly, skipping over the fact that Israel's offered to give up this land for peace multiple times, but those offers have been rejected. So again, this one-sided idea that Israel's an occupier, and, and if Israel left the West Bank tomorrow, there would be peace and birds would sing and flowers would bloom, means that when we take students to see the reality, mm. even if it's a bad trip, even if they hear the from, and they do least, hear from critics. They see the complexity. And that's, and that's the thing. At a minimum, they see the complexity and they understand that scapegoating one side and one side only isn't right. But that alone is quite valuable. Well, we've, we bring, again, we target the leaders. We brought many people to Israel who supported BDS, who you know, led the after, charge for BDS. Yeah. After we we're have, done with this podcast, David, I'd be curious if you can get me some names of people who've been on the trip that we can cover in the Jewish Journal and some of the effect that it has on them. That would be a terrific story. I think we can. In fact, one of, one of these women led the charge for a BDS uh, vote in Wisconsin. I think it was Wisconsin, Minnesota, Wisconsin. And um, they interviewed her in a local Jewish paper afterwards. She led the charge for BDS. And more than that, she pushed to hold the BDS vote the first night of Passover when no Jews would be there. And after her trip to Israel, they asked her, what do you think? And she said, I wish I could speak to the me of one year ago and tell her she doesn't know what she's talking about. Oh. That is not an exception for us. That's the rule. We take people who are mostly sympathetic to BDS. We have yet to have a student come back and still support BDS. I'm sure one day it'll happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, not everyone comes back and is a pro-Israel advocate but they recognize that scapegoating Israel for this conflict isn't right, and they don't do it. And very often, they activate their communities in the fight against the BDS resolution. Have you been on one of these trips, I'm sure? Um, no, I've not been on one of these trips, but my staff has been on multiple trips. What, what do you hear back? I mean, uh, and where do they go in terms of seeing the Palestinian side of the story? And so it's, it's critical. You know, we realized early on that the very people we most want on that bus— probably wouldn't agree to go 
if they felt it was some sort of a brainwashing trip. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we realized the only way to get the very people we most want on that bus to go on that bus is if we could show them that they're going to hear from both sides. Mm -hmm. By the way, our mission is very different from Birthright. Right? Correct. Birthright, Birthright has a mission of connecting Jews to their people and their heritage and, 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 and their nation state. Um, and we this don't. is all non-Jews or mostly non-Jews. It's, right? it's a, a trip for non-Jews. Mm -hmm. We let three to five pro-Israel students go, typically Jewish, because they can own the follow-up and the relationships when I they see. get back. But we have a different mission than birthright, and so it's important that we go to the Palestinian territories. And they hear from a variety of people. They'll often meet with students at Al-Quds University. They'll meet with officials from the Palestinian Authority. They'll go to Rawabi and see Rawabi. And you know, what's interesting, what they tell us is not only was Israel different than they expected. They see the tolerant side of Israel, the loving side of Israel, the side of Israel that cherishes coexistence. But the Palestinian Authority was different from what they thought. You know, not everyone in the Palestinian Authority is a Martin Luther King Jr., <laughs> uh, as they were told. Mm. Um, they see the reality, which is there are moderates there, but there are also extremists there. Uh, one of the students that was brought on our trip was from Saudi Arabia. When he saw the graffiti on the security barrier glorifying terrorists, he was shocked, appalled, and offended and came back and helped fight BDS, a Saudi Arabian student. Um, what we think everyone knows, most people don't know. Give me an example of the follow-up. So when the, the three or four sort of pro-Israel students that go on the trip, when they come back on campuses, what kind of things happen? So a number of items. First of all, follow-up is critical. As, as important as the trip is, the trip is only a beginning. It's only a way to capture the imagination and the time of people who, who are apathetic or actually, you know, uh, hostile towards Israel and to get them to see the reality and the truth. Once they come home, it's critical that we work with them to bring their communities in and share the truth with their communities as well. And so we try to do follow-up events with, with each community and group that was represented on the bus, maybe a shared Shabbat dinner. Uh, with a topic or with a speaker of interest to both communities. Uh, maybe a celebration of some holiday that would be shared or of interest. Will, will they write a column in the, in the college paper? We've had participants write columns, um, and we've had participants, more importantly, do two things. When there is a BDS vote before student government, they show up and argue against it. And when there's a BDS referendum, they activate their networks personally and organizationally to vote no. You know, and this, yeah, this is fascinating, David. I'll tell you why. Because, I mean, look, I'm in the media business, and I can tell you, our clicks triple if we give bad news. And there is a sense now throughout the Jewish community in America that uh, it's uh, all hell's breaking loose on campuses against Israel. We have poor Jewish students that are under siege, that are afraid. And I don't know, I think sometimes the media is sort of complicit in this because we have an inherent incentive to dramatize, to exaggerate. And the good news gets lost. And what I'm hearing here is that in all the bad news, there's some good news that we don't hear about. So I want to get back to the bad news because there is some bad news. But the good news is when we engage and when we have the resources to engage, and when we have the intelligence strategies to engage, we win. 
the truth wins. And give me an example of winning, like, for example, a, a, a vote yeah. that doesn't pass. And several of them have not passed. So, correct? you know, for example, last year we were on 40 campuses. And we go only to the worst campuses facing the worst delegitimization. So I'm not talking about friendly places. We were on 40 of the worst campuses in America. They were expecting BDS votes more or less in 20 of them. Um, at the end of the day, BDS votes were only brought up in 10 of the 20. And not in every case, but in most cases, when we asked our local partners why, what, what happened, you were expecting a BDS vote and it never happened. They told us the anti-Israel community saw that we were more active, better connected, had more friends, and they decided they weren't going to win. So they never offered it in the first place. In the 10 where they did offer it, it passed in only three of the 10. We won seven out of those 10 votes. Very often when we look back, why did we win the vote? Oh, those six swing votes on student government were on our Israel trip. Or oh, these communities that were on our Israel trip gen, you know, ginned up their networks to oppose it. The three where we lost, two of them had yet to do their Israel trip. Last year, for the first time, we did have a case where a campus that had our program and had our Israel trip uh, still had BDS passed. But I would note a hostile student government had been elected the prior year before mm -hmm. we ever got there. So we knew going in we were unlikely to win that vote. So that's, that's the kind of impact we can have in the short term. Do you have a, a, a full-time employees that actually track all these votes, when they're going to come up on campus, because there's such a bureaucratic right. element here, because sometimes they plan the vote when we're, the Jews are not available and so forth. Are you into the weeds? We, we are not. One of the things we also, a, a fourth prong, uh, uh, let's, uh, let's not put our name on everything. Let's, let's be humble and listen and not dictate. Uh, let's be comprehensive and strategic, not one-offs. Um, and, and number four, let's not duplicate effort. So where I saw in the pro-Israel community that others were doing a job, we, we didn't invest in it. So there are others in our community, the Israel on Campus Coalition you know, being the, the prime example, that try as best as possible to gather the intelligence and track when and where the votes will be. Oh, so you get that information from someone else. Sure. Okay. That's shared in the community. And then based on and that, you sort of put your priorities Right. And more often than not, we, we, we get the news directly from campus, directly from our partners on campus. They tend to be closest to the situation and how things are changing and shifting. And, and we hear from them that a vote is coming up. But we are also not we're not expert at a vote is coming up on BDS. What do you do now? How do you argue your case? Um, in my mind, if you've got to argue the case for Israel before a hostile student government, you're too late. Gotcha. And if you we try do to our job well, it. you try to plant the seeds of better relationships. That's right. If we do our job well, we've transformed the situation on campus before that vote ever comes up. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, when we're successful, the vote does not come up. But it, a BDS vote is somewhat of a short term metric. Mm -hmm. I also don't want to lose sight of a larger term problem that I hope we're also solving. And this is where we get into some bad news. Uh, and the bad news is, and I'm sure you know it. Every poll done in recent years shows the younger you get demographically in America, the less likely you are to support Israel. And more troublingly, the further left you get politically, 
the less likely you are to support Israel. You combine young and politically left, and which is our campuses. Is? Why do you think that is? I, I think there's a couple of trends ongoing um, that are doing this damage, but it's primarily what you mentioned earlier, uh, intersectionality, political correctness. The idea... Um, uh, and we're not, Israel is not a victim it's you know, exactly we're, we're powerful, and right now, what's popular is to be powerless. That, that's ex- that's exactly right, David. There's nothing better these days, or more or more impressive these days, than being a victim. Israel, thank God, is not a victim. We've we've you know the Jewish people took history back into their own hands, and we pay a PR price for that. We pay a PR price for this. The you know the what what also is critical today is 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 multiculturalism and tolerance. Um, but the myth of Israel as an intolerant place, the myth of Israel as a place where multiculturalism is not valued, but only one culture, one people, the Jewish people is valued, a myth completely at odds with the reality, as any trip to Israel will show you. But these myths ga- are gaining ground. And so people who have these instincts to be far left, to be compassionate, to shun anything that reeks of racism or nationalism, uh, to embrace the victim uh, and ennoble the victim. Because of a lot of work done over a lot of years, they're um, automatically choosing to criticize Israel and, and support Israel's opponents. It'd be interesting to create these multicultural Israel festivals on college campuses where you bring in all the colors of Israel because Israel is not a white country. Well, you, you know... You're on to something, David, because that's one of the ideas our campus partners brought to us, exactly that idea, doing public celebrations of, of the multicultural Israel. And our students do it, and it's very effective. Uh, you know, pe- people are ignorant of Israel and the Jewish people. They assume it's a white European people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they assume it's a white European people that never had any connection to this land. As you and I know, the whitest Ashkenazi Jew traces his roots back to this land from which we were exiled. But more than that, a majority of Israelis today trace their roots back to the Middle East in a, far more, in a far more direct way. Well, you, you all are, and I'm not, but my son is. <laughs> oh, he is. Well, my wife's, uh, my wife's father is from Tripoli. Oh, man. Uh, you tell me about it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but we, but we eat, better half. We eat very well. <laughs> so, so, so this connection to the Middle East is not only this 2,000-year connection, uh, you know, it's it's also a 70-year connection or a 60-year connection from all of the Jews who are expelled from their communities after the birth of the state of Israel. Yeah, sometimes I think, you know, David, don't punish us because we're successful. You know, we're, uh, Israel is really, really successful. And we live at a time right now where it's the unsuccessful, the victims, the weak, who are really popular. And I feel sometimes that Israel gets gets punished for its success and... Well, you know? you're, you're right. They, they are. And I worry about that ethic. Um, Me an, too. An ethic that values the victim and does not celebrate those who have built and created is dangerous not only for Israel. You know, it's dangerous for us right here at home. Yeah, because it's connected to power, and then power is immediately associated with oppression. Right. If you have power, it means you're an oppressor. And it's really sort of diminished kind of thinking. And, you know, at some point we have to sort of enlarge the canvas and Israel needs to not have to apologize for its success, for its power that it needs to survive. And who knows, maybe one day 
our genius uh, PR guru here who's in the studio, <laughs> Nate Miller, will find a way to make success popular again. Well, we're, we're counting on Nate for a lot. Yeah, <laughs> something something else we can put. On but it's worth plates. dreaming about because I mean, in the in the real America, uh, one of the things that I love about this country is that we, you know we value success. It's we, not a class right. system like in Europe where the poor resent the rich right. and the wealthy. And there's something that this country should value success, and it seems that it, we've lost our way in the past few years. Well, that's right. And, 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 and students raised with this ethic of celebrating the victim and not those who've risen above their circumstances to build or create. Which is the story of Israel. It's the story of Israel. A, it's a country born with no oil, no natural resources. It should be a wonderful story. That's right. It should be. And to the extent we lose that, we lose our own dynamism and ability to grow and, and lift up so many people out of poverty as past generations have. But again, this is the amazing thing, you know. From the outside, students view Israel as this, this foreign element uh, oppressing another. Once they go to Israel and once they see the reality, they too are excited by it. Because then you, when you see the energy and the love of life and you hear the stories of people who suffered expulsion, suffered persecution, but instead of looking back in anger and hate, only look forward with love and try to build and create. It is powerfully compelling. And I know a lot of non-Jews who are so excited by the story that they want to adopt it as their own. Mm. Because we, this is a powerful example for humanity. And that's the exciting thing about Israel. We're not just talking about some country in the Middle East. We're talking about something that is historically just and, 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 and captures some of the beauty of the human spirit in a very real, concrete way. And it captures it in a in a very messy way. It's got yes. one of the loudest press, the the vigorous debate, and I mean, you, you see it all there. This is not a country that is hiding its faults. The faults are, you know, there to to be seen. Well, without a doubt, and 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 I think that is also further proof to people that what they're seeing is real. What they're seeing is not some sort of story or some sort of propaganda. In a free country, a rough-and-tumble country like this, what you're seeing is real because everyone is free to express their views. It's really, really difficult to love life and not love peace. Yeah. And whenever I try to make the case that Israelis love peace and want peace, I can just say somebody who sends a son or a daughter to risk their lives in a war, they, they turn into peaceniks. I'm like a radical peacenik right now. The right. last thing I want is for my son to go into harm's way. And this is one of the fundamental truths about a country that's always potentially at war is they really, really, really want peace. I've never met an Israeli who doesn't want peace. They've just ended up to be in a situation where it's extremely difficult to make peace in a hostile environment. And that's tragic. That's right. And I think the camp of Israelis who has grown skeptical of, let's say, a two-state solution They've done so not because most of them crave peace um, and most of them want dignity for Palestinian people and freedom for Palestinian people. But unfortunately, they've looked at past peace efforts. They've lived through past peace efforts where these generous offers for peace, generous as far as the biblical homeland that was offered, generous as far as the strategic highland that was offered, generous as far as the square footage that was offered, did not produce peace, 
but very often inspired waves of terror. And uh, young people who lived through that second intifada, and this is my wife's generation, the most generous Israeli peace offer in history made by my cousin, Ehud Barak. Correct. Who used to be broke too, and he made it Barak. Ehud Barak, yeah. He Hebraized his name. Um, Yeah, most decorated soldier in the history of Israel's army. I'm very proud of him. He made this generous offer, and what he got back was not a yes and not a counter offer, but the second intifada, where Arafat and and his Fatah faction competed with Hamas to see who could blow up more Israelis. A generation that was basically grounded during the years of the second intifada, not allowed to go out to restaurants and malls, is a generation that is skeptical that the next offer will produce anything better. Now, you can agree with them, or you can disagree with them, but I think one has to understand that mentality. You know what your cousin said to me once? Mm. Uh, he said he had three words in the offer that made it impossible for Arafat to sign, and those three words were end of conflict. That's right. That's right. He could never agree to end the conflict. You know, and a lot of people criticize Barack for making that offer, but I think it was important that he did, and he knew what he was doing. He was testing Arafat. The world believed Israel was at fault. The world believed that if Israel would get out of the Judea and Samaria, there would be peace and well-being. Arafat made noises sometimes as if he might believe that. Barak felt a, an obligation to call test, his bluff. test that theory and call his bluff. And one of two things would happen. Either there would be peace or the world would know that peace was not possible, and more importantly, the Israeli people would know. This is an issue that has the potential of dividing the Israeli people. I think because of the example of Barak's offer and the response of the Second Intifada, most Israelis understand that as much as they crave peace, it might not be possible at present. The problem, the problem though, is that it's empowered the more extreme elements within Israeli society and you see it now with certain groups within the coalition that want to annex land in Judea and Samaria, which only takes you further and further away from a two-state solution. There's a movement now in Israel called We Have to Divorce the Palestinians for Our Security. And I think this is the fallout from all the rejectionism, is that it's empowered the element in Israel that never wants to leave. And if you never want to leave, we really buy ourselves a real dangerous future where we have to give two million Palestinians the right to vote. And, you know, the the majority is not Jewish. And it's it's a problem we all know so well. And the one silver lining in all this is that there are movements within Israel that are totally aware of it. And, And they're aware of the danger. Well, and I, I think you know, there's a tendency to oversimplification mm. all around. Here in America, the oversimplification is it almost— Just leave. End the occupation. Right. That's right. the just oversimplification right. here. I wish. And, and, and obviously, you know the history. You, you know that Israel tried to do exactly that, but the offers were rejected. And I always say to a young person who says, just leave, you know, if you were prime minister of Israel, knowing what happened in Gaza when Israel just left— Rocket fire from Gaza to Israel did not de- decrease. It dramatically increased. You know, you're prime minister of Israel, and you know what happened when Israel, uh, the Israeli uh, military, left every Palestinian population center during the peace process uh, in the early 90s. 
And what happened? Terrorism did not decrease, it dramatically increased. Right, and it's 80% of the Jewish, of the Israeli population is if they leave the West Bank. It's even much more that's dangerous, right. That's, correct? that's right. Gaza is as far as you can get from Israel's population centers and still be on Israel's border. As you know, the Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, is the hilly highland overlooking 80% of Israel's population and economic infrastructure. We're talking about Hezbollah and Hamas smuggling in precision weapons. If they controlled that highland, they wouldn't need precision weapons. They could hit any cafe in Tel Aviv or any bus stop in Jerusalem with the crudest homemade Qassam rocket. So your prime minister of Israel, knowing this history and knowing that Abbas wouldn't last very long if Israel wasn't there. Would you uh, worse, take that risk? Would you do it? Could you just leave? The minute they understand some of that complexity, they understand maybe just leaving in the absence of security guarantees and peace isn't really the viable option they thought it was. I have a feeling some pro-BDS students that you take to Israel start to get a, a greater appreciation for that complexity. W without a doubt. That's one of the things they learn when they're there. My big thing, David, is complexity, really. I mean, it's, it's, I've been editor-in-chief, if I can make any kind of contribution, I want to introduce complexity into the conversation because well, it's so rare to have these black and white issues that are so easy to solve. They're not easy. You're right about that. And in a large sense, that's the mission of higher education is to take our preconceived simplistic notions and introduce us to opposing views and complexity. And if I've and ever heard of any movement that has zero complexity, it's got to be the BDS movement, without correct? Without a doubt. No, without a doubt. Take perhaps one of the most complex conflicts in human history and boil it down to this pathetic black and white, at, so at odds with the reality. The only sad thing is that so many students know so little that they're willing to buy it. Um, and by the way, that just brings me to sort of a last piece of our strategy, which is we not only fund these trips and we not only fund the recruitment for the trip and the follow-up from the trip, we also engage in campus-based activities to share this truth and this message more broadly with all the students we can't bring to Israel. And I think that's critical, too. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these campuses... The anti-Israel students used to dominate the quad. They'd march around like giants and have their apartheid wall, and no one would dare say anything. And Jewish students felt besieged and threatened. And we didn't like that. In fact, it was very important to our, our, our founders, uh, Sheldon and Miriam Adelson, that Jewish students need not be afraid. They wanted a situation where Jewish students would no longer have to be afraid on American college campuses. And one of the ways we accomplished that is by doing proud, public pro-Israel events on the Quad too. We take back the Quad. The days are over when only the anti-Israel students are public and loud. What do you do when you take well, back the Quad? We, you know, we, we let our students Besides decide. Besides hummus. <laughs> well, food is very critical to oh, these events. Oh, you need food. But our students have come up with various approaches. They, we said this, if the bad guys are doing an anti-Israel week, let's do a pro-Israel week. Not a one-day Yom HaTzmut. Let's do a public pro-Israel week. So they've come up with Israel Fest, Israel Palooza, Israel mm. Peace Week, Israel Love Week, you name it. What's important to me is that it's proud and that it's public, that Israeli flags are waved, and we send a signal to everyone on that campus that we, too, can be proud and public, and this space belongs to us as well. Mm. In addition... We encourage them to do some sort of counter demonstration during the Israel Hate Week. Mm. Let's not let these liars dominate the campus for a week. Let's put out the message that what they represent isn't true and what they represent is the problem. This lying and the anger and the, 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 uh, the lack of dialogue is the problem. 
So like I said earlier, most of our students don't want an angry counter demonstration. They don't want to go up and argue with these anti-Israel students, although many do. More often than not, they like to stay on the same space, put something out like what they call a peace tent or a peace bridge, mm -hmm. and simply let passers-by know those guys over there, what they're saying, it's not true. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it's a shame those guys aren't interested in talking and dialogue because that we, we would be. And what our, what our students tell us is that for this demographic, the, the end of the millennials, the beginning of Gen Z, their message is much more popular and much more compelling than the apartheid wall message. How do you see the next... Uh, 12 months. I mean, you're now in your third year, right? So we're, we're, this will be, this is our third full academic year. Are you loving this job, David? I do. I do. I, you know, it's, I, I, I've been given the privilege, like I said, the luxury of taking a step back uh, 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 without the, the demands of constant fundraising uh, and to figure out what works and then to fund what works without having to constantly seek the creditor yeah, it's a whole it's a whole different i mean it's still israel but you know from 10 years with only christians well and i'll say this what used to keep me up at night was that there were too few jews in america supporting israel our, our base was too thin and too narrow and too geographically challenged what keeps you up now i feel like kufi helped change that reality mm -hmm. what keeps me up now are the polls i mentioned earlier because we're losing young people and because we're losing people on the left to Israel, we are facing a real danger. And here I, I hate to sound an alarm, bad news, but I believe this is true. We are facing a real danger of losing one of our two political parties to Israel. The progressive base of the Democratic Party, where the energy is, where the youth is, is becoming openly hostile to Israel, as goes the base so goes the party and the elected officials 10 or 20 years from now. So you can freeze the frame today, and I was just at the IAC conference with you in Miami, and you can hear a Nancy Pelosi or a Chuck Schumer say, let's not make too much of these three or four newly elected members of Congress who support BDS or, or who are hostile to Israel. They're right if you freeze the frame today, but we ought not freeze the frame today. We have to look at the trend. And the trend is that they are more representative of the progressive base of the party and the energy on the progressive base of the party than guys like Chuck Schumer or women like Nancy Pelosi. I fear for the future of the base and the party. So that's what keeps me up today. And when you hear something, uh, when you consider a problem like that, which is really, you know, troublesome, do you envision sort of accelerating the growth of these trips? Because it seems to me these trips where you take so many of these progressives, you know, the, in the grassroots, so many of them are, are on campuses right now, and they're going to be the future leaders of the Democratic Party. That's right. Right? And do you consider, like, oh, my God, we should do instead of 50 trips, 100 trips, because they seem to be so effective? Yeah, and so that's where I feel not only are we accomplishing something in the short term, by a short term and admittedly, non-comprehensive metric like defeating BDS. But I feel we're also doing something critical for the long term, which is when I identify people who are campus leaders, and most campus leaders are on the left. I mean, we, we have very few campuses, uh, major campuses in America where the college Republicans or the evangelical club control the political debate. Almost always it's groups on the left. So by identifying these campus leaders on the left and, and changing their view of Israel, I do believe we're changing or challenging this threatening long-term dynamic of losing our progressive base. And it might 
be odd for someone who spent a lot of time on the right with evangelicals, but I've believed very strongly that we can make the progressive case for Israel in progressive language to progressives and win. In fact, when J Street was created years ago, a lot of my friends were upset and worried. I was happy because I said they recognize the problem. We're losing progressives. They're going to go out. I know what they're going to do. They're going to go out and make this progressive case for Israel to progressives. We need them. I've been bitterly disappointed in what they actually have done because they've not become a progressive pro-Israel group. Unfortunately, more often than not, I feel they've added their voice to the large chorus of voices that are criticizing and scapegoating Israel, and that market's already very well served. Yeah, I think the difference is that you're trying to plant seeds of complexity. Yeah. Which is a whole different ballgame. You're not planting seeds of ideology, because uh, if the seed is you got to end the occupation and have a two-state solution, that's not complexity. And I think this is where I see your role is. You are planting seeds of complexity. You're taking people who have a black and white view of the conflict, and you're introducing complexity. You're not saying one way or the other. Just say, here, let's look at the whole picture, correct? And if you can do many more of these, I would love to see that happen within those new members of Congress who do seem to have a black and white view of the conflict. And from what I understand, they're not taking any trips to Israel right now. Have you heard? No, quite to the contrary. Uh, Uh, Would you ever consider... I mean, going beyond campus and taking some of these new members of Congress? Well, one, one of the things we'd like to do um, one day is, is to be able to take people who are influential, not just on their campuses, but maybe in some of the movements that are active on the, on the left, um, and bring them on these fact-finding trips. And again, we show, them, we show them the itinerary. Some of them say, wait a second, you know, this is the Maccabees. It's Sheldon Adelson. It must be a right-wing trip. We show them the itinerary. It really is... Uh, an objective exploration of Israel and the Palestinian Authority. We have nothing to hide. The truth is our best ally. We only want to share the truth because anything else we share... The messy truth. Yes. And so I agree with you. We're introducing complexity. And by the way, when we introduce complexity, we win because students no longer want to simplify and scapegoat one side. But my hope is that we're doing something else as well. My hope is that we're also planting the seeds of sympathy and compassion. You don't have to believe Israel is perfect because Israel ain't perfect. But to sympathize with this story of a people so persecuted over the centuries and recent decades, returning to their ancient land, building something beautiful, and becoming a bastion of our highest values, I would dare say our highest progressive values, in such trying circumstances, in such a tough neighborhood, it's compelling. It's very compelling, and I think complexity is the bridge that gets you the sympathy. Sympathy is not what you lead with. You lead with complexity to end up nurturing uh, sympathy and empathy. I think you're right about that, David. I think when we just start off with our talking points, no one's listening. They don't. We have to find a way to penetrate that wall that is closed to us, get their attention. Um, my favorite writer, right. my favorite writer of complexity, I, I have to do full disclosure, he's my best friend, Yossi Klein Alivi. <laughs> you ever met him? Uh, I've met Yossi. Yeah, I was speaking to his agent this morning. Uh, oh, okay. Just this morning, we want to get Yossi to speak. Oh, my God. He's, first of all, his book, you know, Letters to a Palestinian Neighbor, talk about complexity 
and empathy and just it's like he's just nailed it yeah he nailed complexity to, and, and, and then you listen to it and you say wow there's such a value for me to complexity because it empowers the individual complexity means i can go off now and do my own research i can come up with my own conclusions nobody's trying to ram anything down my throat and i just think this is the the secret sauce yeah, I, I think that's right. There's something in him as a speaker and in his writing that very much speaks to, to all of these students who are not yet ready to believe our talking points on Israel. Again, our talking points are true. I mean, what we say has to stand the test of time. It has to be true. And I believe in sharing the truth about Israel. But I've also understood that if you're not being heard, you need to try something new. You know, I, I had a new book come out the same time as Yossi's called Reclaiming Israel's History. Yes. I'm very proud of it because I think it shares a history of Israel in a compelling way, in a, in a fast-paced way, while debunking all of the myths of the anti-Israel narrative. But I have to acknowledge, because, because my book is focused on sharing the pro-Israel narrative, it's not going to be read by and heard by as many people as perhaps Yossi's book can reach. Mm-hmm. And at the well, end of the day, if we're reaching people who otherwise wouldn't listen, uh, we're doing something critically important. Well, on that note, uh, David, it's great to have you in the studio. Nathan Miller, thank you for bringing him. And we we'll look forward to continuing the conversation. I look forward to it, David. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. This episode is sponsored by Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Please visit them at wurz.yu.ed. <laughs>